Good night, everyone. Today I'm here with Stefan Molyneux. Stefan Molyneux, he's, he has like 15 years of YouTube, 3,700 videos, billions of comments, over 300 million views, user number four. So what happened, Stefan? Well, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, I have I have my suspicions, but uh, yeah, I was uh, on YouTube from 2006 to 2020. Uh, an election year. I'm sure that's just a complete coincidence. But uh, yeah, an account in good standing. And then uh, next thing you know, um, just kind of yeeted straight off the platform. No appeal, no warning, no identification of what the issues were. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty brutal way to be treated. And um, I've landed, of course, uh, on other platforms that I have been working with in the past. LBRY or Library. There's BitChute. I'm on Dailymotion. Brighteon. You can find me in lots of places. And for those of you who want to still follow what it is that I do, which I'm still doing, and I think even better, I'm the kind of guy like... I'm like a muscle, you know, resistance breeds strength. So if I get deplatformed from various places, and it's been quite a few places over the last year or so, then I'm like, okay, I just have to get better at what it is that I'm doing. And although I always feel like I have my pedal to the metal, I guess you can push through the base of the car and go even faster if you need to. So for people who still want to follow me, and I hope that you will, you can just go to Free Domain dot com and uh, check it out i've also got I've, I've done over i just counted this up the other day i've done over 600 interviews with uh, just about everybody in the no, in the known universe from noam chomsky to jordan peterson i was on joe rogan three times there's a whole bunch of uh, and that was just personally i also went on a show f uh, three times as well and so yeah people can follow me freedomain.com and there's videos there's podcasts you can click on connect to follow me on social media the remaining peninsula outposts of freedom that social media still affords. I'm on Minds. I'm on Gab. I'm on uh, PocketNet. I'm on, uh, gosh, Locals. I'm, you know, just about every Telegram. And um, so, yeah, I hope people will continue and the conversation continues as it has been doing pretty well so far. Yes. Um, another thing I note, like, for example, like you, you had almost like 1 million uh, subscribers on YouTube. Now on BitChute, is like it's less than 100,000. Do you think people is too lazy to... I don't know, to open an account in another platform or do you think it's still like worth it to fight for people like they don't even manage to, you know, take some time to open an account who takes only, I don't know, one minute, two minutes? Well, you know, it is, uh, it's, it's a humbling thing uh, and it's really, really important. I mean, I've been out here in the public square 15 years and not to toot my own horn too much, but uh, I have taken risks in the topics that few other sane people have um, have taken. And I think that's really important. I think if you are in possession of essential knowledge that can really help the world, even though it's controversial, even though it's taboo. See, taboo is like a gravity well to a philosopher because whatever is considered taboo is probably something where the truth is. Because the world, as you probably know, is not run by entirely wonderful, great, moral, and virtuous people. And therefore, whatever they forbid you to talk about is probably something that is the most important to talk about. And whatever they permit you to talk about is probably not going to matter that much in the long run. So I'm kind of drawn like uh, a Tennessee Williams heroine to a brutal man or a uh, moth to a flame, I'm drawn to these taboo topics because I feel that's the responsibility. Like, if you know how to do the Heimlich maneuver and some guy's choking on a piece of halibut, get up and go and help the guy. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of a reasonable thing to do. So I have been doing all that stuff and taking a lot of risks, you know, professionally and, of course, personally with, uh, you know, going to speak and getting threats and bomb threats and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, I do encourage the audience that if you followed me on YouTube, I mean, it's it's not, I'm just, I'm one house over, <laughs> you know, like I'm one house over. And it's sort of like if you have this girlfriend and you're like, baby, baby, you're the best, you're the greatest. And then she moves one house further away and you're like, no, that's, that's, that's too far. I'm, <laughs> that's just too far for me to come. So I do invite people, you know, go to freedomain.com forward slash connect, freedomain.com forward slash videos, and you can get all kinds of uh, great stuff. I'm continuing to do the work that I do. I'm continuing to do the call-in shows and so on. So I hope that people will check out what I'm doing and not, you know, give me the rather sour taste in my mouth of being the, the lady that everyone treasures, but... 
she's she added one extra digit to her phone number so now it's just not worth calling anymore so yeah you can just go to uh, bitshoot.com you can go to lbry brighteon you can go to locals bunch of places and you can go to fdrpodcast.com to get my podcast sorry i don't want to sound like a ticket tape of advertising no, no, no but yeah just uh, just come on by and the work continues it's okay. You know, um, I think, I don't, I don't know if you think the same, like, I think it was the videos you talk about uh, George Floyd can be the reason why you were burned. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, so the, the video that was in the queue that was about to be published was myself talking with two police officers, one ex-police officer. I, I think they were both ex. Uh, so uh, it was a, a black cop and a white cop, and we were getting, we were going through uh, George Floyd, the pluses and the minuses. And, you know, I, like everyone, you see those initial videos, you know, a cat breathe and the cops on his neck staring coldly into the camera. And you're like, oh, man, maybe this fabled mirage of absolute police brutality that is unrestrained and racist and brutal. And, and maybe it is finally, you know, like if you're in the desert and you keep running towards these mirages and it turns out to be just an illusion, maybe this time it's a lake. Maybe there is really one out there in the Sahara. So I thought I saw that, and then I sort of sat and thought about it, started looking at the evidence, and it's like, ah, you know, I really don't think that a bunch of cops are just going to kill a guy when everyone's got their cell phone on them, and they're wearing body cameras, and, and, and. And now, as you've seen, uh, there's talk of him having swallowed drugs in a prior arrest. There was, of course, fairly high, if not downright lethal doses of fentanyl in his system, methamphetamines, and uh, all of that. And, uh, man, it's... Uh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty brutal, and you know this is the guy who jammed a gun into a woman's pregnant belly during a house raid, looking for money and drugs in the past. And you know the guy had hypertension, he had uh, significant heart ailments. So he complained that he couldn't breathe even before they tried to, uh, uh, even when they were trying to get him in the car. He fought and resisted and went rubber bones, and they were trying their very, very best to get him into the car, like, hey, man, if you're claustrophobic, no biggie, we'll turn on the air conditioning, we can roll down the windows, we'll make it as comfortable for you as possible just to get him to the station, and, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough gig, man, I, I have my issues with the police, but it's a, it's a tough gig, man, because the deal is, you gotta go with the cops, <laughs> that's the deal, like, when I was in Hong Kong, and the phalanx of stormtroopers from the state came rolling down the road after we after I took a couple of facefuls of tear gas, I'm like, yeah, I know the nature of the state. That's the deal. You comply or you die. Uh, they will escalate until you comply or you die. That's the deal with the state. And George Floyd, having been arrested before, having done time before, knows the deal. And he knew, of course, he knew that uh, he was high. Uh, he knew that he was driving. He knew that he'd passed, uh, you know, this wet, dripping wet counterfeit bill. He knew he was going to the big house and wasn't going to see daylight until, well, quite a long time in the future. Plus, you know, as I predicted early, again, not to toot my own horn, I predicted early that I bet you he said he had COVID, you know, and this was back in the, before everybody knew the fatality rate and everybody was scared crapless of COVID. And yeah, he said he had COVID, he'd had COVID, which meant that they had to restrain him face away from themselves. The procedure that they used, the neck on the, the knee on the shoulder, was actually introduced and maintained by a black police chief, and it was the recommended way to deal with somebody who was going through this excited delirium state where people get so freaked out by being arrested, their bodies just shut down as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, I've been working on this uh, pushback against these race-baiting, police brutality, you know, black-hunting cops boy, all the way back from George Zimmerman uh, and onwards, and I've been doing a lot of work on that kind of stuff. I did it with, um, oh gosh, uh, Big Big Floyd, right? Uh, uh, sorry, uh, Mike Brown. I did it with Mike Brown, and uh, yeah, it was uh, a lot of work, and uh, they really, really need this narrative, right? Because the black vote seems to be heading to the Republicans to a greater degree than in the past, and it looks like the incipient... Marxist revolutionary stuff that's coming out of Black Lives Matter is not sitting very well with the fundamentalist Christianity that characterizes a lot of the black community. So, yeah, they need to scare people back into the fold, I guess, and this is how they're trying to do it. Yeah, talk about like uh, Black Lives Matter. What do you think about these peaceful riots? Uh, the peaceful <laughs> riots is it's very funny because I, sometimes I think they take the peace because you see like buildings, buildings on fire behind you, people fighting. In the press, say like, it's peaceful. Uh, another thing, um, what about the Caio uh, uh, writing house? He was he's in prison. Oh, he's in custody. No, no, in prison, in custody. And the guy who was 
who was uh, shot in the arm is giving like a press. No, the guy interview. who was shot in the arm, I think, you know, he's out. The guy who was shot in the he's arm, out, yeah. it's the guy he's who out. shot him, right? The the 17-year-old kid. So he's in custody. The other guy who shot. Yeah, the guy, he, the guy, he, he, what, he shot two guys, killed two guys and shot this guy, blew 90% of his bicep away and so on. And, you know, time will he, tell. Time will tell. He, the video he, evidence, uh, you know, again, untutored outside, non-cop, non-lawyer eye, you know, it looks like it could end up in the vicinity of self-defense. It will take, of course, a jury and uh, evidence and all of that to unpack all of that. But I really don't like this rush to judgment from people who say that they're very much against lynching. It's like, yeah, the, the whole point is you're supposed to withhold judgment until the facts come in. And that's what a rational, peaceful, reasonable civilization does. This, uh, I saw a video, I know exactly what happened, and we should string these people up, and they're guilty and guilty and... and I mean, that's, that's brutal. That is not a civilized system. You know, we spent about 150,000 years getting out of Hatfield versus McCoy, string them up kind of justice, uh, which is not really justice, and having a rational set of rules to determine truth from falsehood and guilt from innocence. And I mean, we let that go. It was, well, it was kind of all for nothing. And a lot of suffering went in to try and build this stuff up. Perfect. The other thing is going on now, like... Um we are close to the election, but let's talk about uh, let's talk about coronavirus. Like um, some people think that's a real virus, another one think it's not real, is a hoax. Uh, the only thing like I I know is going to be a lot of people is going to be in poverty, uh, a lot of suicides happening, a lot of people depression, panic attack, uh, hunger. So, do you think is is which fight to close? close the, 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 the countries because of coronavirus? Well, um, the, the, the sort of trick of understanding, I think, a rational argument, which is hopefully synonymous with my arguments as well, is something like this. If the government does, does it, it sucks. It sucks. And it's the entire wrong thing to do because the government operates on violations of the non-aggression principle. The government operates by initiating the use of force. So my position from the very beginning, and, you know, to be fair, I did call it a pandemic potential, a, a pandemic in, in January uh, of this year. So I knew pretty early on that, it, and it, this is based on upon contacts I had in, in Hong Kong and other places who were sort of feeding me information. I'm just the body of the spider, the legs of the information that, that's coming in. But uh, I was kind of keen on saying, until we figure out what this thing is, it's probably a good idea to avoid crowds, to wash your hands a lot. A mask wouldn't kill you. And, but it's voluntary. I never said the government should pass all these laws forcing people to do this, that, and the other, because the government is always overreached. The government is always producing the opposite of what it says it wants to do. So the government says, hey, we want to keep people safe from medical dangers. And now, as you know, 10 times the number of people have died from not having regular access to health care that have died from COVID. So... Of course, you know, I, I was like, hey, you know, flatten the curve. Let's see what we're dealing with here. But on a voluntary basis, on a voluntary basis, the way that pandemics should be dealt with in a free society is the airlines who fly people in from other countries should be liable for the resulting economic damage. And it should be negotiated on a case by case basis. You know, the malls may let you in or may not let you in without masks. And you have this continual experimentation. As soon as the government imposes a one size fits all law, experimentation is over. And now we have to cobble together experimentation from Sweden and Denmark and the UK and the US and Brazil and whatever the hell is going on over there in India. And we're just going to kind of cobble things together. But there are so many variables that it's really, really tough to compare. And so your people are trying to compare America to other places like Australia or New Zealand. It's like, they're kind of islands. That's a big deal. They have different demographics. They don't have as fat a population. You know, obesity plus COVID is a pretty deadly combination. And I think America, outside of maybe one or two Pacific islands, is about the fattest nations uh, uh, on earth. And, you know, you get a bunch of Americans to do jumping jacks at the same time, you might knock us out of our whole damn orbit, right? So this uh, is a bad thing to compare to. But because the government is largely imposing one-size-fits-all solutions, we don't get to uh, experiment. The fatality rate is pretty low. The fatality rate is pretty low. There are, of course, a massive amount of comorbidities that together with coronavirus appears to be particularly deadly. So there's lots that people can do to, you know, lose weight, exercise, get your vitamin D, uh, keep yourself as healthy as possible. None of this, of course, being medical advice. But there's a lot that you can do to keep yourself 
safe and healthy and uh, you know i i have uh, i've always tried to look for the upside even of disasters like this so the upsides yeah okay so the mass swirling flow of endless human migration seems to be on hold for the time being which is not the end of the world and we have up to 40% of people starting to look into homeschooling. I'm a big advocate for that because the mental leftist straitjacket of toxicity being lashed around the bodies of tender young children uh, is pretty horrendous and could have them going kind of crazy for the rest of their lives. So there's a lot of things going on about that. So, you know, we'll try and find the upside. But no, I don't, I don't think it's a hoax. I do believe that it was either brewed uh, up or developed or, you know, in the lab in Wuhan, you know, the fact that in a giant, giant country, uh, a, a virus happened to emerge within a stone's throw of China's only bio four weapons lab seems to me a coincidence that stretches credulity. But I think it was a real thing. I think that China is completely getting away with facilitating its escape from China. Uh, and um, it's just amazing, you know, like social media companies pick on someone like me because I'm just a podcaster with three chords of the truth. But China releases a worldwide pandemic that people believe killed close to a million people. I accept those numbers. And everyone's like, well, but it's racist to say that it's a Chinese virus. It's like, OK, you, you can see very clearly where power lies in this world. Yeah. They don't talk about China anymore. It's been quiet about yeah. China. We don't know what's going on there. Uh, the other thing is about they talk about the vaccine now. And they, they are doing the Oxford vaccine. I think a couple of days ago there was a problem. But now it seems like they are... The investigate seems is okay. What do you think about vaccine? Uh, for, for example, me, if I had the option, I wouldn't have the vaccine. You know, it's a it's a tough call. It's a tough call. I. It's about 10 years to make a vaccine normally. Now, I think that the government is a bit hyper-cautious with this kind of stuff. I had a doctor, uh, a research doctor on my show years ago named Mary Ruart, who even 10 years ago was, was calculating that the FDA had killed about 5 million Americans by not allowing drugs into America that were perfectly legal and safe in other countries. So I think there's too much caution in the development of vaccines to begin with. But, um, you know, rush, it, it's rushed. I mean, it, it's 10 times rushed. And that either means that it's 10 times less safe or it's way too slow to get things done elsewhere. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, if, if there are a bunch of people who need a, an, a, some sort of medicine, uh, well, the FDA will delay that forever, it seems, until it's perfectly safe. And that means it's so expensive to produce that you don't even try and solve smaller markets of illnesses. But now with this one, suddenly it's like, oh, this affects the tax receipts of the government. This affects the elites. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's hit the gas and get this thing through. And, you know, there are, for most vaccines, there's a significant number of people who have pretty adverse reactions. And that is going to occur. So I, I remain... I remain skeptical about the safety and, uh, you know, if I have my choice, I'm, I'm not rounding, I'm not, I'm not lining up. I'm not going to be first in line for anti-COVID 1.0 because, uh, you know, we're going to see, because the other thing which, you know, people are just focusing on the mortality rates, which, you know, pretty, pretty low, but the issue seems to be for a lot of people, they're, they're called the long haulers, right? So you get COVID and, you know, it knocks you on your ass for a week or two or, or three. A friend of mine I just did a show with, he's been out off and on for a couple of weeks. But, you know, everybody's had a flu or most people have had a flu. Yeah, it knocks you on your ass for a week and then you kind of crawl your way back out the, the other side of the world and you re rejoin your life. But um, for a lot of people, there is this long haul issue where they're testing negative. But because this thing has these brutal, you know, like, superintendents have these master keys that can open up all apartments in a building and uh, COVID has one of these master keys that can help it to penetrate cells all throughout the human body which is why you're getting heart issues which is why you got kidney issues which is why there is brain fog issues and some people it just seems to get in there and sit there like herpes you know like like AIDS and um, uh, it's it's pretty rough. That's the part, just personally, that's the part that alarms me the most. You know, I'm not in a particularly high-risk group. I'm not super old. I'm not overweight. I'm, you know, I work out. I'm healthy. I, I, I do my bike machine and all that. So I'm not too worried about any kind of fatality. What does concern me, though, 
which is almost like a fate worse than death in a way, particularly for me, because brain fog to me would be just about the worst thing. It's my most prized, well, I could say my second most prized organ. So to me, the issue is, man, what if you get something that just kind of hooks into your system and just hangs out, you know, like a squatter, like, you know, Michael Keating in Pacific Heights, you know, just kind of hangs out there and you can't get a good old eviction notice. That to me is the, uh, uh, is the concern. And of course, as I said, from the very beginning, um, it's uh, the real issue is uh, the real virus is, is socialism or communism or state control. Coronavirus is just how it spreads. Yeah, this is a, qu uh, a question here from Naked Traitor. Stefan, to what degree this pandemic is a social engineering exercise? <laughs> well, it'd be nice if it was just an exercise because an exercise is something that doesn't actually happen. You know, and a military exercise is not something that you actually go and shoot people for real. So if it was just a warm-up or an exercise, that'd be okay. But, you know, I, I got messages from people in Melbourne, Australia. They're in like 23-hour lockdown. It's like a prison. You got an hour outside for exercise. If you're more than five kilometers away from home, you need a note. You need a reason to be out there. And it's like, it's brutal. And you got Jacinda Arden in New Zealand, a uh, bit of a foe of mine, <laughs> going back to when I tried to give speeches in New Zealand a year and a half ago, two years ago, I guess now. Oh, she's locking down significant parts of New Zealand because five cases shot up, right? So... You know, the, the problem is, see, if this, if this virus had come from Russia, you know, you got to think about how this stuff plays out, right? If, let's imagine that this virus had come from Russia. Well, the Western media, for a variety of reasons, well, they loved Russia when it was communist, and they hate Russia now that it's nationalistic and pretty Christian and all of that, right? So if this virus had come from Russia, there'd be great temptations to let it run through, like wildfire through the population, and then get really, really mad at Russia and get everyone enraged at Russia. So you could put sanctions on and, and, and uh, seize assets and, and freeze bank accounts and just, you know, really gut the Russian economy, just get really, really mad at Russia. But because, of course, there are so many leftists, communists and socialists in the media and academia and Hollywood and so on, they don't want people to get too mad at China especially because the left has been cozying up to China. You look at sort of Biden and his son and all the business he's been doing over there. And the left has kind of been cozying up to China as the last great communist country, just as previously to the fall of uh, the wall, Berlin Wall and so on, they cozied up to Russia. So I think that they're like, ah, we don't, you know, we'll, we'll let it start up and then we'll, you know, clamp it down. And, and they just don't want too many people to get sick because at some point people are just going to get really, really angry at China, which, you know, they should, right? I mean, China broke its most solemn international treaties by not reporting the danger of the, um, uh, of the coronavirus and denying human-to-human -human transmission, harassing and locking up doctors who were trying to talk about it. You know, Taiwan was telling the World Health Organization that China knew there was human-to-human -human uh, transmission and uh, they were shouted down and the World Health Organization completely faffed things up. Well, you've got a revolutionary Marxist in charge. It's like not going to be a very viable organization. So... I mean, it's really a lot about protecting the reputation of, uh, of communism and leftism because, uh, you know, this is a really, really bad thing that's happened. It's one of the most significant events in modern world history, one of the most significant events in modern world history. And uh, all you can talk about is uh, how do we deal with this mystery ghost virus that just somehow emerged and is among us and nobody's ever following the bloody footprints back to uh, Beijing. Yeah. Uh, change the subject a little bit. Like um, Joe Rogan, in his Spotify, seems like he removed your uh, episodes. Do you, do you know about that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I do know about that. So what do you think about that? I mean, it's not, it's, not, it's not surprising. It's not surprising to me at all. Again, I don't know the details about the deal, but, you know, Spotify has significant – they work significantly with Tencent, which seems to have some pretty significant ties to the Chinese government. So – you know, I got, um, I got, I think one of the reasons I got into trouble on uh, YouTube and other platforms, see, China is a huge market, obviously, right? You know, a billion people or whatever it is these days. And it's a huge market. And so people who criticize China, uh, what does China do? Well, China says, don't, don't do that, right? And when China says, don't do that, it's not like it's a free market over there. So you know, that that sort of matters. And so I remember, I mean, I did, as you probably heard, I did a documentary on Hong Kong, a March with the yes, protesters I, and all of that. Absolutely. And uh, you couldn't find that. 
Like it was, it was ghost town, man. It, it had been 1984 down the memory hole almost the moment I published it. You could search for the exact title and just not uh, find it. So yeah, there was a significant amount, I think, of effort to not have that. And of course, the more right I am, or to be more accurate, the more right philosophy is, the, the philosophy that I talk about, the more right that I am, the more dangerous I am in a way, or the more dangerous the truth is, right? So when I talk about, I mean, on Joe Rogan's show, I talked about the dangers of engineered bioweapons and the threats of engineered bioweapons. Uh, I do a show talking about the dangers of communist China to the world. And, you know, it was like a month after I left uh, Hong Kong that uh, the virus started to spread. So, you know, I looked pretty prescient as far as all of that goes. And so because I'm a wait for evidence and reason kind of guy, I will often run in the opposite direction of the crowd who is just being managed by propaganda and being Geppetto puppeted all over the known intellectual landscape by a bunch of people who are trying to just gin them up to achieve particular political goals. So I'm often running in the opposite direction to the mob. That it takes a while for the mob to turn around and realize that waiting for reason and evidence and knowing your history is kind of an important thing. So yeah, I talked about the dangers uh, of China. I talked about the dangers of uh, bioweapons and, uh, and genetically engineered weapons and so on. And so the fact that Joe Rogan is over on a platform that's not on the opposite side of the planet as Chinese power interests, yeah, I mean, of course, they're not going to want to uh, take, take me across. I, I can completely understand that. Yeah. Another thing about, do you believe there's going to be a global economic reset? Well, I, tell me what you mean by reset. I want to make sure we're sort of talking about the same thing here. To be honest, it's like, it's kind of conspiracy. I don't know. Um, something about like, they're going to, the whole economy is going to collapse. They're going to start from zero, I think. To be honest, I'm not sure, but this is one of those conspiracy they talk about. Like, but well, not it's sure not a conspiracy. It's, 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 it's math. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolute, zero. completely, and, and it's total math. So, I mean, I've said this before, every human life on this planet is backed up on average by 30,000 American dollars in debt. You know, we've yep. been borrowing from the future. We've been selling off the unborn to international banksters for ever, really. But certainly since the welfare warfare state arose in the 1960s, it's just been completely and totally brutal when it comes to how we're treating the unborn, how we're treating our children, I mean, in many countries. In the West, a child is born to about a million dollars in debt, and the un and unfunded liabilities are 12, 13, 14 times the U.S. economy, even before the economic clawback of the COVID-ravaged economy. So it's, uh, it's not good. It's not good. See, what we've done is life depends upon resources. We all know that. I mean, you know, you've got to eat. You obviously use a fair amount of hair gel. And uh, I, I not so much, except for maybe one armpit. So all life requires resources. And how have we been getting these resources? Well, we've been borrowing. And we've been printing money. And we've been deferring payback by, you know, selling bonds and all this kind of toxic garbage that enslaves the next generation. And so we have human life that is dependent upon debt. Now, I've never been that much in debt, but I have had once or twice in my life where I needed to live pretty lean. And it's, it's pretty rough. You know, it's, it's pretty rough. I don't know if you've ever had this where you just oh, like... Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll, I'm I'll have half the sandwich now <laughs> and half the sandwich tomorrow. <laughs> I no, you know. Not even half, Stefan. Not even half. That's right. Not even half. I will smell the celery. I will smell the celery today and call that a meal. Yeah. Um, no, no. I mean, I, I certainly had it when I was a kid. Uh, you know, my mom would, would go off on these trips and leave me with like, you know, five bucks for a week or two. And I would be, uh, well, I remember I would go to the mall and for 10 cents, you could get a bucket of batter. You know, from the, from the fish and chips place, you know, like this, this scrapings left. And it was not, you know, get some ketchup and it turns into the greasiest, most disgusting meal, but it fills you up. And you'd hang around at friends' places around dinner time. And, you know, they, they think, they'd think they'd have a dog. Your stomach would be growling so much. And, you know, sometimes it would pay off and you'd get some food. And other times you'd, you know, be like, well, you know, it's dinner time. You should probably go. I'm like, really? Okay. 
right? So, and then you you go to the pizza place and see if they threw anything out. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty pretty lean. I had to live pretty lean sometimes when I was a kid, and that's rough. And we're we're not used to that, you know. We because we got any problem you get, you just throw money at it. You just print money and and throw money at it. There's some group that's not doing well. Hey, let's just borrow and print a bunch of money and fire it at them like you know you're firing Germans over the border in Soviet Russia from a cannon. And so we have all of this debt and all of these unfunded liabilities, and people are getting the sense that we are not anymore a generation away from the reckoning, right? The reckoning is, you know, it's like the old saying, it's in, I think, a Hemingway novel, they ask a rich guy who was super rich, and then it's like, how did you, you ended up bankrupt? How the hell did you end up bankrupt? And he said, very slowly, then very quickly. And that's like, you know, like smokers or ill health, you know, like, how did you get sick? Kind of slowly. And then all at once, you know, everything just falls apart. So because everyone's aware that, you know, it's, it's like if you have a big extended family in the Middle Ages and uh, so people start doing the math and they say, holy crap, man. Oops. We may have miscalculated our food situation over the winter and... It's pretty rough. We're not going to make it. You know, we can't all make it. And and then what happens is, you know, people start to look on each other and camaraderie begins to vanish and people get kind of sinister about it. You know, it's like when there aren't enough lifeboats for people on the Titanic, people get get a bit punchy, right? And they get a little bit aggressive. So I think everyone is kind of realizing deep down in their bones, whether they know it in an abstract sense or can quote the numbers, not too relevant. Deep down in their bones, though, my friend, they are. They're getting it. I mean, man, we can't, we're not going to make it. Like, we, we can't possibly pay this back and, you know, lean hard times. Like, why, why is Game of Thrones so popular? Because it's seven years of summer and then seven years of winter. And we've had the seven years of summer of just printing money and borrowing money, and we're going to have seven years of winter. Everybody knows that it's coming. Everybody knows that uh, it's going to be pretty rough. Now, what happens then when you can't run out of money, when you run out of money? I mean, we've seen it happen a whole bunch of times throughout human history. Saw it happen in the French Revolution. Saw it happen in Weimar, Germany. We saw it happen uh, in um, the Roman Empire towards the end when they completely corrupted the currency by mixing all kinds of toxic garbage into the formerly pristine gold and silver and copper coins. And it's, it's rough, man. It's really rough. And now, the problem is, of course, I'm sorry for the long speech, but the problem no, is that... Fine. A leader needs to come along and say, hello, wakey, wakey, everyone. We've been living in a dream world. We can't possibly continue in this kind of way. But we've become so frightened of reality. And no one's going to vote for him. Well, that's the thing, right? It's the old thing that Socrates said about democracy is the guy offering you free candy is always going to get voted for. And the guy who's offering you broccoli and exercise is not going to get voted for. But anyone who comes along and says, yeah, you know, we, we can't do this to our kids. We can't do this to ourselves. We're going to have to tighten our belts. We're going to have to live really lean. And it might take 30 years to, to get ourselves back on, the, on path. But we've been so drugged by this endless money. And we've got this weird fantasy that resources are infinite. And so, you know, you just fire money to every conceivable human problem. People are getting kind of uneasy because they know that that bill, you know, that bill is coming over the horizon slowly and it's a you know it's a pretty big ass tsunami of a bill and our sandcastles ain't gonna last yeah is it so how to prepare for that like what is like gold bitcoins food yes, you <laughs> yes. <laughs> those are all, yeah those are all i think you know get yourself some gold get yourself some food and uh, and get yourself some community you know because one of the things that's happened with this We've got money like oxygen, you know, like you don't sit there and say, hey, I hope, enough, I hope I have enough air in my house today. Like unless you're in the space station, it's probably not that big a deal. Or if you live with me, in which case you probably get an excess of CO2 from my endless diatribes. But uh, so we've got this weird thing where like resources are like oxygen and to deny anyone resources is like to deny them oxygen. Like you, you can't like when was the last time the government basically said, yeah, that's an interesting idea, but we can't possibly afford it. Because everybody knows deep down they kind of can in the short run, again, just create the money, print the money, borrow the money and all that. So get stuff that actually has fixed value, that has objective value, that isn't just, you know, the arsewipe, fiat currency, paper, toilet scenario being pumped out by the central banks. Get yourself a community because all of this money has allowed us to create this complete veneer of self-sufficiency. 
You know, like you've got all of these atomic or atomistic individuals living in these vertical ice cube trays of condos. They don't know their neighbors. They don't know anybody around. They just have friends all over town and so on. Get to know your neighbors. Um, uh, get out of the cities. It's probably not the worst thing in the world to start thinking about. And, uh, and get yourself some skills that aren't just typing. You know, get yourself some skills that aren't... Uh, you know, yelling at microphones on the camera and all that. Get yourself some skills that can actually be productive uh, should there be interruptions to the food supply, should there be interruptions to the value of money. Uh, you're going to need some pretty good friends and you're going to need some pretty good skills and you're going to need some food that doesn't go off too quickly, in my humble opinion. Uh, by the way, this is going to be my qu uh, next question. It's about like um, you are divisive because in the, in the new normal economy now, What advice would you give to men? Like, which kind of job, for example, to, to look for? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to... I mean, everybody has their particular bliss and skills which they can follow. I love arguing and debating and researching and speaking. I love computers and programming and all of that. So this kind of coalesced pretty well for me in, in what it is that I do. So you definitely have to do something that you love. But success these days is simply defined by courage. You know, you stand in the middle of the road, you're just going to get hit from both sides. And so success these days seems to revolve around courage. I mean, the ball's on you for having me on. Good, man. <laughs> well done. No, Good for you. Thank, I, you very, I, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I hope it works out. I'm, I'm very no, glad no, to be here. No one believed that I would have come here, to be honest. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, people who still come on my show, I, I appreciate that because, you know, they've done a fair amount to try and shred my reputation. But so follow something that you love for sure, but be willing to take risks. And uh, if you don't pick a side, the side picks you in whatever conflict is coming our way. You know, everyone can kind of get along when there's enough food and water in the lifeboat. It's when things start to run low that human conflict begins to swell. And so, you know, I sort of hate to say it, but you're going to have to choose a side, you know, freedom or tyranny, individualism or collectivism, reason or propaganda, evidence or media, which is the opposite of evidence. So you're kind of going to have to pick a side and you're going to have to be courageous in that side and you're going to have to try and um, lure people or encourage people or charisma people into your side. And uh, uh, portable, portable skills are, are pretty important. Uh, expand your human capital, uh, expand your capacity to negotiate you know, and, and invest in quality relationships and don't accept garbage trash people in your life they will they will drag you down they will drag you down to their level and beat you with experience as the old saying goes so uh, shun low quality people people who are exploitive people who are mean who are shallow who are into drugs and promiscuity and just propaganda and you know empty-headed people are going to be extraordinarily dangerous when the roots of propaganda really take hold because you can see that happening right now people are you know getting pretty feral out there you know couple of generations of propaganda is really paying off for the destabilizers of the world. So, uh, you know, keep, keep people around you that you would trust with your life, because hopefully it won't come to that, but it might. You're best to be ready. Well, think let's talk about, like, about uh, homeschooling, peaceful parenting, and you'll write a book about parenting, yeah? I'm just starting a book on peaceful parenting, and uh, I've got the sort of chapter headings down, and I've started doing the actual text, and uh, I am enormously focused and dedicated. It's, you know, one of the first things I started doing, and one of the first things that kind of got me in trouble was uh, peaceful parenting, which is the argument that the non-aggression principle, which is do not initiate the use of force, applies first and foremost to children. And I've been pushing back for many years about people's addiction to politics. And hey, you know, I say this as a bit of an addict myself, so I'm not sort of preaching from some mountain of perfection here, but we, we're all dragged into the soap opera of politics because it's so tempting and it's so engaging and it feels like you're doing something when you leave, you know, the battle between the mainstream content of the website and this it's the battle between the article and the comments section, right? That's where the real battle is. And it feels like you got these political opinions and you, you, you argue with people and you post on Twitter and you, you know, do. And, and it feels like you're really, really doing something. And I'm not saying it's not important. It is somewhat important. But 
where is it that most people, most people experience the most violence? Is in the home. You know, still the vast majority of children are hit in the world. Still, in most countries, it's legal to hit children. And so the violence that you will experience, you'll experience violence in your life, assuming you don't go to prison. You'll experience violence in two places, right? Number one, the home, on average. And number two, uh, government schools, right? So you sort of homeschooling and peaceful parenting kind of go hand in hand. So children are deserving of the greatest and deepest and most powerful protections that society has to offer because they're the only one of us that are in an unchosen relationship. Like you have a child, they didn't choose you. Like you can choose your spouse. You know, you and I are here doing the show together voluntarily. You can choose all of this stuff for sure. But children don't choose their parents and children don't choose their schools and they don't choose their teachers and they don't, at least until they get older, choose their subjects. And even then it's a very limited choice. So this is why our freedoms are falling away, because we have a totalitarian structure for our children, and then we expect them to wander out into the world, into the remnants of the free market, and just be individualists and freedom lovers and so on. But we have to train them in that from the very beginning. So I've been a stay-at-home dad now. It's close on 12 years. My daughter is almost as tall as my wife. Not that my wife is very tall, but (laughs) my daughter's kind of getting up there. And... I've never yelled at her. I've never obviously hit her. I've never punished her. I've never sent her to bed without dinner. I've never put her in a naughty corner or a naughty spot or anything like that. We just we just reason with each other. And she is a happy, wonderful, uh, bright, brilliant, I think, uh, person uh, that I'm very honored to know. And you have to parent like if your child had a choice of any father or any mother in the world that they would choose you. And if you parent that way, I think you're setting yourself up for a lifelong joy and, and happiness in the relationship. But if you abuse that monopoly power you have as a parent that your kids can't leave and they can't go anywhere and they can't, you know, can't really fight back and they can't call the cops. And if you abuse that monopoly power, then I think you're setting yourself up for a pretty unhappy time over a time, particularly teenage years. Right? If you're rough on your kids when they're young, you know, they're getting bigger and you're just getting older. And so when the teenage years hit, they're going to turn to their peers. They're going to turn to the internet. They're going to turn to the modern cults of collectivism to gain their identities. And it's going to be really, really rough. So much of parenting is just preparing for the teen storms. And uh, you've got to have that strong bond and that respect. Uh, And if you have that, I think you can navigate it fairly well. But if you abandon your kids to daycare, if you let the state raise them and indoctrinate them and so on, and because why? Because you're I mean, particularly for women, like, why? Because all you do is you go to work, you strangers raise your kids, there's no continuity of values, and then you come home from work and you turn your paycheck over to the people raising your kids. You haven't made any money, really. All you've done is lost a child or a few. Okay. Um, I'm not sure, but I think the last video I saw before you being burned from YouTube, I think you, you were talking about against violence against children. Am I right? Well, I think technically the last video was my daughter had a turtle. <laughs> we had dug a little pond for her. That was like the last live stream. Uh, or maybe one before that, yeah. I guess. No, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's very much a topic, you know, because yeah. I have, you know, it's a, I wouldn't say it's like the toughest job in the world, but it's a bit of a tough row to hoe because some of my listeners have been around for five, ten or even longer years and some people are new so you have to kind of blend things like for the new people you can't assume that they know all the backstory of your arguments but you can't keep repeating them otherwise the people who've been around for a long time are gonna wander off out of boredom but yeah i definitely do keep touching on that topic because i simply know based upon the math that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children um, are not being hit are not being abused are not being yelled at are not being punished or not being frightened Uh, As a result of the work that I've done, I mean, I've had countless experts on the show talking about the negative effects of child abuse and how bad spanking is and all of that. So I've worked really, really hard, not just to make the moral arguments, but to bring the empirical science and data to bear on these facts as well. So, you know, once you get it, it's like a real click moment where you're like, oh, I, I don't have to hit my child. I don't have to yell at my child. I don't have to frighten my child. I don't have to bully my child, you know, because we say to kids, what do we say to kids all the time? We say, don't hit, don't steal, don't call names, don't be mean, right? And 
then we do all of that to our kids. I mean, it's, very, it's a very confusing world for children. Whatever you do, don't hit someone. Oh, you hit someone? I'm going to hit you because that's good, right? And so it's very confusing. And if we give children a consistent message uh, and a consistent world to live in, they really flourish. Uh, and if we confuse them, they just get baffled and belligerent. Yeah. Talk about children. I haven't seen that film, or I think the film is called Cuties. Everybody's talking about that. If it's that real, that they are using children to doing twerking, stuff like that, is that, is it, is it, because I don't even want to see it, to be honest. So I don't know what to say about it. Well, I mean, I've I've heard about the controversy. I have, uh, I mean, like, like yourself, uh, I, I try not to eat food that's got tire tracks on it. And I, I try not to watch content that is just appalling and, and horrifying. And uh, I think it's a Congolese woman who uh, came and, and wrote this movie and directed this movie. And uh, I don't know, man. I mean, you've, you've got people in the States calling for uh, investigations into Netflix for distribution of child pornography. And, um, you know, a guy I, I quite like, uh, Scott Adams, uh, said he's a real free speech guy, a real free speech guy. And he watched some of it and he said, yeah, I'm a real free speech guy. It's pretty hard to shock me, but somebody needs to go to jail for this. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's absolutely appalling. And it just shows you like the chain of like the echo chamber, right? That there's nobody in that whole process, right? This, this whole process of... You know, you write a script, then you get your funding, then you cast your actors, and you, you get your distributors, and you go to film festivals, and then you sign a deal with Netflix. Like this whole chain of people. It doesn't seem like there was anyone who said, wait a second here. Something's wrong. We are hypersexualizing 11-year-old children. Now, the fact that my daughter is 11 is making this one hit pretty close to home. But no one along the line says, hmm. No, and of course the Obamas are neck deep in with Netflix and other people and so on. So it just shows they seem to be genuinely surprised that anyone could have a problem with this. And I don't know, maybe it's the Congolese woman. Uh, maybe they say, well, it's not gross if it's diversity hired. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what, because I don't know anyone who would get involved in anything like that? I mean, you've got parents who are putting their kids up for these auditions. Can you imagine what these auditions are? Put on this bikini and twerk? Yeah. At what point did the parents say, hell no. What are you doing? I thought we were selling some toothpaste here and you've got my woman shaking her ass like uh, Cardi B on a trampoline. Like, no, thank you. Right? So, so like, w nobody... Nobody at the film festivals is like, I'm not putting that on the screen. What are you, crazy? We can't normalize this. This is horrifying. And the whole step from conception to it flowing into people's homes. Ugh. And, and nobody, it seems, raised the alarm along the way, which tells you just what a predatory echo chamber these people are in. And... Uh, to quote uh, Mike Cernovich, uh, you know, if it's choice between cuties and Sharia law, and then he quoted some Arabic phrase that I didn't understand, but uh, I think I knew which side he came down on that. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it really is a different universe. It's a different moral universe that this whole thing, like this isn't just someone who filmed it in, in her house with a, with a phone, right? This is, this yeah, yeah. is, I mean, I've made a movie before. I'm not just the documentaries. I've made, I've made fiction. I've made a fiction movie and so on, right? So, so it's really a big, complicated, expensive, massive team effort. And nobody on the set is taking pictures and leaking them and saying, what the hell is happening? You could, this is not good. Like the whole thing just kind of barrels and, and slopes along and uh, doesn't seem like anybody raised an objection. I don't know how a society functions when you have a lots of people saying, this is beautiful, high-moving art. And other people are like, this is child pornography and people have to go to jail. How the hell are you supposed to cohabit in the same country, the same culture, with these kinds of viewpoints uh, clashing at each other? It's kind of like, to be honest, it's kind of like, you know, this, they use these like uh, boys, like drag queens. Well, they, they think that's like normal as well. They go through like some strip clubs. I think they give money then. It's like, it's, I don't think that's normal. <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly questionable when it comes to long-term happiness, I would certainly say.
Yeah, essentially. Because um, we have to close to the final. Um, people ask you, which kind of books do you recommend besides yours, of course? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this great guy, Stephen Molyneux, good friend of mine. Uh, He's got some great books. Uh, so uh, books that I recommend, that's very interesting. Um, no, yours as well. We can talk about no, your no, books. No, no, yeah. I mean, look, you can go to freedomain.com. My books, uh, with the exception of The Art of the Argument, are all free, and you can enjoy them. They're on audiobook and um, uh, EPUB and, and HTML and, and all of that. So, books. Well, I'm a big fan of fiction. And in particular, 19th century fiction, particularly Russian 19th century, century fiction, you know, your Dostoevsky's and Turgenev's and so on, uh, although I never really got into Tolstoy. I'm a big fan of E.M. Forster uh, and his uh, novels, particularly Room with a View, which is a beautiful uh, book. And um, Dickens, uh, you, you almost can never go wrong with Dickens. He's such a charming and entertaining and engaging writer. And, you know, just by the by, it's been pretty well established that people who read fiction gain an empathy. Because what is fiction other than a chance to try somebody else's life on for size? I am virtually a resolute and bitter enemy of modern fiction, which almost seems to be eternally a parade of dysfunctional, brutal, traumatized horrors passing as high art. I mean, the Anne-Marie MacDonald stuff and Goldfinch and all that's just, to me, unbelievably brutal and, and toxic, I think, to happiness and mental health. But it's kind of like movies. You dip back a little bit in time and you can get some pretty wholesome stuff uh, coming out of it. And some of the dysfunctional novels can be very good and very instructive. I'm sort of thinking of J.D. Salinger's A Catcher in the Rye, which is a pretty good examination of the effects of childhood sexual abuse on adult personalities. That can be instructive in the same way that, you know, doctors have to go through the medical journals with all the illnesses known to man so they can better heal people and so on. So there are some nonfiction writers that I uh, enjoy uh, and like quite a bit. Uh, you know, the modern, a lot of the modern conservatives have really good books. Ann Coulter's got some fantastic books. In fact, uh, just to put a minor pitch in here, the novel Demonic, oh, sorry, the novel, the, the, uh, the book Demonic and its description of the French Revolution versus the American Revolution by Ann Coulter is a very important thing to read right now. I just say buy it and, and read it. And uh, if you're not a big fan of her as a whole, at least read the sections on the French Revolution because uh, I think that's probably where we're heading without some pretty strenuous intervention at the moment. So, um, But yeah, I would say novels in particular are fantastic. And uh, well, my daughter and I just went through Animal Farm and we went through... Um, uh, Lord of the Flies, which if you skip over the endless just uh, the endless uh, descriptions of how you know green sunlight passes across boys forever flipping their hair out of their eyes, uh, it's actually a very good novel. So uh, yeah, I would I would say you know nonfiction from the conservatives is pretty good, and uh, if you dip back in time to some of the older fiction works, you can do really really well. Yeah. Well, do you think is it possible like, different races and religions live at the same in the same place? Let's say let's talk about Brazil, for example. Brazil is kind of like a melting pot. But they, some people think that's not good because it's, Brazil is quite violent and poor. And, so what do you think about that? So to me, uh, as you probably know, I am an anarcho-capitalist, which means that I am uh, for no government and a free market. So if you look at different religions and different cultures and different races, I believe that we can live together in relative peace and harmony. We do have to understand that there are group differences, which I've talked about in my show with regards to IQ and other issues and so on. I mean, that's something to just understand. You never would judge an individual by that. But when you zoom out to society, it can help explain some disparities. It's not something we should accept as eternal. And it's something we should always try and work with to try and close the gap and improve things. But we do have to have a starting point that's empirical and rational. But in the absence of the state, we have so much of a greater chance to get along. So European history, of course, you've got a couple of hundred years of religious warfare. Why was there religious warfare in the past in Europe and not so much in the present? Although whether there'll be religious warfare in the future in, in, in Europe seems highly likely. And that's because there was a separation of church and state, that you could pursue your own religious convictions free of either the temptation to use the power of the state to inflict those opinions or arguments on others, or out of fear that other people were going to use the power of the state to force you to conform to their religious arguments or ideas. And so we can get along well if we have free speech, if we have the separation of state and ideas, separation of state and economics. I think we can get along together 
quite well. How things shake out with regards to that, there seems to be a lot of self-segregation. You know, they call it the lunchroom test. Uh, places where diversity mandates are not enforced, things like churches and, you know, lunchrooms in schools and, and so on and prisons. Uh, people tend to sort of cluster, uh, you know, like attracts like, or as Muhammad Ali said, you know, the blue bird flies with the blue bird and the black bird flies with the black bird and so on. That's what seems to happen. I think a lot of cross-pollination can be helpful, but people do kind of tend to settle into people kind of like themselves, for better or for worse, you know. But I think a lot of that um, can be mediated. The conflicts that come out of that can be ameliorated, if not eliminated, by just having a less powerful government for sure and eventually no government. And I think we'd get along in ways that we can't even imagine right now. In the same way that, you know, after a couple of hundred years of brutal religious warfare, if you had said to Europeans, oh, no, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to live together fine uh, with different religions, like nobody would have believed you. But you just had to separate church and state and lo and behold. Yeah. One thing that people ask me about this is about, if, do you know the E. Michael Jones you know him? I do know. I don't. I, I know of him. I've not read his yeah. books, although I know that he's uh, uh, he's quite uh, big on economics, if I remember rightly. And I think he was he was banned from YouTube as well. I uh, uh, it would not shock me, I suppose. Yeah, you know the thing about people. People ask about Kianon. What if? What do you think about Kianon? I'm sorry, I didn't quite get the word. The Kianon. 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 Oh, QAnon, sorry. You know, yeah. I um I uh I'm not I'm not there. I'm not I'm not I'm not down with the QAnon uh thing. I uh I have my concerns. I mean, you can read more of Jack Posobiec about this. He sort of claims to know the origin and I trust Jack. He's a a very good guy and so um he thinks that the origins are not particularly valid. But my concern with QAnon, even if it was valid, which I don't think it is, but is that you know, the, there's this they're going to take down the deep state. It's just going to take a while and it's going to be this and it's going to be that. And, you know, I think this gives people a sense of hope that just doesn't seem to be borne out in reality. You know, I mean, the, the Mueller team, it just turns out that they just trashed, erased or, quote, forgot their passwords to airplane mode locked phones a couple dozen times. And that seemed pretty serious. I mean, that seems like destruction of evidence to me. I don't know if that came up in QAnon's predictions or whatever, but, you know, the deep state is, is fighting back pretty hard, as we know. And so this idea that there's some big movement that's going to somehow pay off in the end, um, I'd be a little bit concerned that that's going to make people kind of complacent uh, and think that something is happening for which there doesn't seem to be much evidence. Yeah. Uh, one more question. Stefan, we have to close to one hour, so that's the last one. Uh, in Let's Brazil, do two. Let's do two. Great sure. okay. So in Brazil, they start to have a lot. Um, since we have like kind of right-wing government, I don't think it's right-wing because people brand him like a right-wing, but it's kind of more like a left-wing. So he's they, they, since he got in power, there are loads of new laws against men, like uh, basic men uh, get more time in prison, etc., etc. What do you think about that? Well, women outvote men. I mean, they live longer, they vote more consistently. And again, there are lots of exceptions to the general rules, as uh, as we know, but women as a whole generally prefer security to freedom, and men generally prefer freedom to security. So when you have a more patriarchal society, it tends to turn more towards political liberties. And when you have a gynocentric or female-dominated society, it tends to turn towards the welfare state. And, I mean, people have done in America very cogent analyses of voting patterns and female voting patterns. And you can see just how government spending and debts and deficits exploded after women got the vote. And um, so it's very hard to maintain economic liberties and, of course, then as a result, political liberties when you have women voting. Women are very good at consuming as you know, I mean, just go to any mall, right? I'm sure it's the same. I've been to Sao Paulo, I've been to Brazil, and it's the same there as it is everywhere else. You go to a mall and there's like 80 stores for women and two stores for men. And one of those stores is men's fashions, which is driven by women buying stuff for them. And the other one might be some computer store or something like that, right? But um, it's a female-centric consumer society. I mean, 80, 90% of consumer purchasing decisions are made by women, so the modern economy is driven by 
female spending. And I think a lot of it is complete crap, total waste, bric-a-brac, useless throw pillows, stupid heels that you can't do anything useful in, ridiculous pipe stem dresses that don't give you any mobility, and useless frou-frou and frill-frills and blah, blah, blah. And it's a lot of it is just crap and garbage and, and useless and destructive to the environment and, and a massive waste of just about everything. But that's the economy that we kind of have. So governments, in order to maintain the economy that is. See, governments don't like dislocations in the economy unless it destabilizes the American economy or the Western economies and allow the Marxists to expand. But governments don't like reconfigurations of the economy because it interrupts the tax base, right? So governments, to maintain the, the flow particularly of income tax and also of uh, uh, sales taxes and so on, governments need to get, by hook or by crook, as much money as humanly possible into the hands of women. Because women don't save as much they like to spend, and that's the way the economy is, is uh, set up, right? So if you have something which flows money from men to women, then things are great for the existing economy and the powers that be and the tax structure and so on. Now, in the past, this used to happen because men made the money and turned over the majority of money to women who would spend money on the households and the kids. And a lot of that is legitimate stuff. You know, kids need dental care and clothing and toys and, and all of that. And so you, you do two things. Number one, you keep pushing for bigger and bigger houses. Why? Because with bigger houses, you get more property taxes, right? So you constantly want to keep driving up the value of houses. You do that with mass immigration. You do that with zoning laws that restrict things and so on. And you do that by constantly pushing women to get bigger and bigger houses with all this house porn that goes on on the uh, home and garden channel and all that. So you get more and more desire for bigger and bigger houses. And houses now are two to three times what they were when people had far more kids in the 1960s. And the other thing that you do is you get money through the power of the state from men into the hands of women. You do that because, you know, divorce, single motherhood, and so on. So how do you do that? Well, you do that through the welfare state, number one, and you do that through alimony and child support, number two, right? So you just, and also you do that, number three, you do that through hiring tons of women into the government, right? Because uh, everybody knows, I'm sure it's the same in Brazil as it is just about everywhere else, that when you walk through a government office, it's mostly females, and so you, 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 get them, you give them lots of pay, and then you transfer money to men from women through the power of family courts, <clears throat> through the power of, of divorce and, and alimony, child support. And then you have a welfare state that takes money from productive men in general. Men pay the majority of taxes and then just dumps it into the hands of women, and the women go spend it right away. Women are, to a large degree, consumption machines, which is bad <laughs> for the economy, the environment in the long run. So, yeah, you, you have the law. I said this in a video I just released today. The law doesn't serve the truth. The law serves women as a whole. And the state knows which side of the bread is buttered uh, and uh, knows that to say to women, uh, yeah, we, we're going to universal basic income. We're going to give you that. And welfare state, old age pensions, which disproportionately benefit women and all of that. And any man who complains, well, clearly he just hates women. And it's like, no, I, this is all bad for women. This this drug consumption of made-up money for women is really bad for them. And, you know, but, you know, come not between the beast and his prey when, you know, it's women and government spending, you'll get called a misogynist like that. Okay. So the last question, like, what do you think the result of the election this year? And do you think after that is going to be a woman president? Well, if Biden gets in, there's pretty high likelihood that Kamala Harris is going to be the president because, I mean, he's he's not doing well upstairs you know it's pretty pretty clear you know he was doing a um, teleprompter reading the other day and he actually re he read end quote like he didn't know that just meant stop quoting someone uh and so yeah i think that they're going to try obviously and get biden in and then you know they may try and get him disqualified uh for mental issues and so yeah i think it's uh, could very well be uh the case and you know this goes back to an old argument from ayn rand that uh and it's not always the case. I mean, if you look at someone like Margaret Thatcher, who was an arch-conservative in England in the, well, she was a politician in the 70s and, and 80s and so on, uh, she was, it was kind of half and half, right? So she said, uh, socialism is all fun until you run out of other people's money. And she was very much up on sort of Milton Friedman and, and uh, all of that uh, free market economics, but uh, still found it pretty hard to control immigration and mass spending and all of that. And then when she tried to put a poll tax in or rationalize some sort of tax system, she got booted out pretty quickly. So uh, I think it's pr fairly likely. And 
it's going to be tough. You know, I mean, there are people on the left who have a fair amount of common sense. There are people like Tulsi Gabbard and so on who, you know, was against the military industrial complex and I think would have worked hard to bring the troops home. And, you know, now, of course, with Trump being nominated for two Nobel Peace Prizes or has been nominated twice for a Nobel Peace Prize for his international work, which is almost beyond reproach. I mean, you look at the list of wars started by American presidents and it's endless until Trump and then there's nothing. He's not started any new war. So those who worked pretty hard to get him in power should really take a bow and a lap for saving hundreds of thousands or more of human lives from yet another desert war America would start. So yeah, you'll very likely at some point get a female president. But of course, if if mass immigration continues into America, uh, it really doesn't matter what uh, happens uh, with regards to media or anything, because the immigrants generally go hard left for their voting. And um, after Trump, uh, unless something significant changes, there'll, there'll be no effective uh, Republican Party because they'll be as unelectable in America as they are in California. Yeah, I had a problem. I was frozen for a couple of seconds, <laughs> so I lost my screen in the back. <laughs> no, I, I thought you were just really miming yourself very well, gone all ventriloquism on me. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so I want to take, but before, um, can, can you tell people, some people was asking where can they find you? Sure. Please? I'm right here in front of you. Follow the hand. No, I'm uh, on the web at freedomain.com. And somebody asked earlier, I saw, do you have your backup videos? Yes, I do. Funny you should ask. Yes, I do. You can find them on BitChute. You can find them on Library, L-B-R-Y. And I'm working with another provider to get backups uh, uploaded and all of that. So uh, the treasure, while a little bit down in quality for um, recoding, re-encoding, uh, remains there. So uh, you, can, uh, you can get stuff there. And I hope that you will uh, follow the work that I do there. Perfect. Well, I thank you very much. It was really like nice to meet you here. I think it's the first time you come like uh, live to Brazilian. Uh, I think that's I right. Guess. And I, I told you yeah. it would be a fun chat, right? I tell you that. Exactly. Thank you very much, and um, thank you very much for people here. So please can like, share, and put some comments there. Thank you very much. Thank oh, you. Uh, sorry, thank sorry to interrupt. Bye. Just as I said, I had an only, yeah. only an hour. For the people, I assume you don't mind if I put this on my channel. For the people, uh, and particularly my friends, uh, Spanish-speaking friends in South and Central American-speaking friends, could you just give a little bit, whether in English and in Spanish, on where people can find your work? Um, as a, my channel is, is called Macho Toxic, huh? so I only have like a YouTube basically. My my Twitter account is not that big, and Instagram is not as well. So that's my only main <laughs> channel. And for the people who are just listening to this on the podcast, what's the name of the channel? Macho Toxico, Macho like like in Spanish, Macho Toxico. Uh, Mayo the worst name for a Mexican restaurant I've ever heard. But uh, all right. <laughs> Thank you very much. A really a great pleasure to chat. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much. Bye Thank, bye. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.